0: Hello all and welcome to this episode of finnerin's Wake. The purpose of this segment is, once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate the three most important news stories of the past seven days, the three most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad, of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is, and just how quickly it tends to disappear. I also know how much there is to know these days and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you were when you came. Today we'll cover the following three news items. A shooting in Tulsa leaves four dead. The Dep Heard denouement, the trial of the year, concludes. And Pride Month begins, and with it, the commencement of June. And I'll also throw in a bonus item and, of course, our weekly quote of the week. But we begin with a shooting in Tulsa that left four dead. This sanguinary season whose blood-soaked end I'd earnestly hoped by this point we had finally come, is not yet through. No. This intolerably long stretch of murder, carnage, savagery, and senseless death persists. June, like May, is bespattered by innocent blood, as another violent shooting stamps its bloody imprint on another month. From Buffalo, New York to Uvalde, Texas, we now turn to Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which the third shooting in as many weeks has taken place. First, it might be useful to recount, in brief, the two shootings by which this latest one in Tulsa was preceded. Two weekends ago, a young white supremacist traveled 200 miles west to the city of Buffalo, from his home in central New York, in order to carry out a premeditated attack against black Americans. For the fulfillment of his racist purpose, he targeted a local grocery store, Topps Friendly Market, at which, according to his reconnaissance, a predominantly black clientele shopped. Citing as his motivation the Great Replacement Theory, whose inapplicability to black people has left many questions unanswered, He killed ten people. More horrific still was the shooting last week at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, by a deranged Hispanic gunman to whom, so far as we can tell, no clear motivation can be attributed. He seems to have targeted a fourth-grade class, of whose two dozen students, nineteen, were killed. Not because of some latent disdain for ten-year-old children, but because of his monstrous, almost unfathomable indifference to human life. In the case of the buffalo shooter, into whose mind and motivations lawyers and psychologists are now readying themselves to probe, he at least cared enough to hate his victims, uncomfortable though this thought may be. Indeed, he cared very passionately about the black people on whom he unleashed his hateful, murderous violence, though this passion was of a wicked, satanic, and contemptible kind. The Uvalde shooter, on the other hand, seems to have been completely unfeeling toward all human life. He appears to have been utterly numb to the worth of his fellow man, condescending not even to care enough to hate him. Now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we have a third killer, representing a third race, inflamed by a third purpose. On Wednesday, a black man, 45 years of age, entered a Tulsa medical building on the campus of St. Francis Health System. He seems to have been a patient in that network, with whom the doctors and the medical staff were familiar. Fatally familiar, by all accounts. Armed with an AR-15 rifle, purchased only a day prior, and a handgun, Michael Lewis, originally from Muscogee, Oklahoma, proceeded to open fire in the office, killing four people before turning the gun on himself. His main target was Dr. Preston Phillips, the orthopedic surgeon by whom, not two weeks ago, his spine had been fixed yet it appears not to have been fixed to his liking. Lewis, unrelieved of his pain, called Dr. Phillips's office multiple times to complain of his lingering symptoms, for which an in-person consultation and follow-up was promptly scheduled. That happened Tuesday. Lewis then called the office again, now Wednesday, before going there in person that evening to confront his physician. In the execution of his plan, Lewis murdered not only Dr. Phillips, but another orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Stephanie Husson, an office employee, Amanda Glenn, and a man accompanying a sickly patient, the aptly named William Love. Ten others were injured. Little at this point is known of Lewis's behavioral past, criminal history, or psychological condition. In due time, such things will likely be disclosed. Mark well, in the meantime, how the media cover this story. I read an article from Newsweek, for example, entitled, Who is Michael Lewis? Tulsa Hospital Shooting Suspect Identified. From which, from the article's first word to its last, the race of the man was conspicuously withheld. Would the color of one's skin not be a useful identifying feature? Not less helpful than, say, the color of his eyes, the length of his hair, the height of his stature, or the circumference of his waist? No. The only mention of the word black, in reference to the pigmentation of one's skin, comes when the article's author recalls the victims of the white supremacist shooting in Buffalo. Lamentable, no doubt, but that happened over two weeks ago. One has to wonder, in the concealment of Lewis's race, uh, what sort of game the media are trying to play. They've created this sort of implicit double language, of which we're not supposed to take notice, yet at whose deciphering even the most inattentive observer needs but little practice. When the race of the shooter is withheld or buried very deep in an article's text, so as to be overlooked, we assume, reflexively, that he is non-white. And he's almost always a he. Contrarily, if he is white, that fact won't escape your notice before the end of the second paragraph, and usually much sooner. This errant paternalism and gross subterfuge is unbecoming of the journalist's profession, and unhelpful above all to the public's knowledge. Let us rather be candid in our language, no matter whom we might offend. And second, the depp heard dénouement the trial of the year concludes. The cause celeb involving these two celebrities, has come to its inglorious end. I say inglorious because, let's face it, neither one of these actors, Johnny Depp nor Amber Heard, emerges from this trial untarnished. Johnny Depp does emerge, however, the much wealthier of the two. A verdict was returned on the 1st of June, declaring Depp, the party by whom the case was brought, victorious. He was awarded a total of $15 million, of which $10 million was compensation and $5 million punitive damages. In accordance with Virginia law, the state in which this trial was held, that second figure was reduced to 300000 300, In the end, Depp walks away about $8 million richer, a bit short, a bit shy of the $100 million he originally sought. Heard, for her part, was awarded something of a consolation prize— her legal team issued three countersuits, of which she won only one. Of the exorbitant $100 million she was seeking, she was granted $2 million. The seeds of this trial were planted many years ago, when Heard and Depp underwent an acrimonious uh, divorce. This happened in 2016, only a year after they were wed. The following is a helpful timeline provided by Insider. In 2016, Heard filed for divorce, citing Depp's mistreatment of her. Heard then pursued a restraining order against Depp, which she abandoned after a $7 million settlement was reached out of court. Heard declared her intention to donate the winnings to charity. She never did. The divorce finalized in 2017, Heard wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in 2018, revealing, without disclosing the identity of her victimizer, that she was abused. She referred to herself, untruthfully, as a, quote, public figure representing domestic abuse, end quote. As it turns out, Hurd was not the author of this article, whose composition was outsourced to the ACLU. <laughs> Astonishing. The ACLU then submitted it to the Washington Post, by whom it was, with very little vetting, published. Heard ultimately failed to pay the ACLU the promised amount. The organization, insistent on being paid by someone, ended up collecting $100,000 from Depp and $500,000 from a fund linked to Elon Musk, with whom Heard began a relationship shortly after her divorce from Depp. It was over this defamatory article, ghost written by the ACLU and attributed to Hurd, that Depp brought suit. Heard's unfounded accusation caused Depp to lose multiple lucrative movie roles, including his part in Fantastic Beasts. As for the trial itself, I refer you to YouTube and TikTok for its most lurid highlights. Hearing their unhappy tale of marital woe is, to put it mildly, unedifying. Heard defecated in Depp's bed, depp snorted copious amounts of cocaine both boozed to oblivion each on his own is not the image of temperance and virtue together they were quite vicious in fact but that viciousness at least on the part of depp seems to have ended where violence might have begun heard on the recordings is to be heard apologizing time and again for striking depp it's clear that she was the one inflicting violence on him and so, this sordid, cringe-inducing case has come to its end. So too, apparently, has the Me Too movement, over which many of Heard's supporters have voiced their lamentations. I fear that they're belated in ringing the movement's knell. No. The death of Me Too happened a few years ago, when the overlooked, deprecated, and ultimately rejected Tara Reid accused a Democrat presidential candidate, Joe Biden, of digital rape. About the details of her harrowing story, the press was totally incurious. The New York Times, for example, remained silent on it for about 20 days, at which point, on Easter Sunday of 2020, it buried it deep in the bowels of its little red holiday edition. That anyone, no matter her credibility, might imperil Biden's victory was intolerable to the left-wing media. And, with that, Me Too died. That's not to say, of course, that Tara Reed's tale is above scrutiny. It should have been examined, probed, and vetted. Albeit by an outlet with a better record than that boasted by the Washington Post. More to the point, though. Heard will never be a champion of women's rights whether it be in the Me Too era or beyond it. Of mendacity, however, she'll forever glitter as the shameless emblem. Third item. Pride Month begins and, with it, the commencement of June. (laughs) Sorry, I meant to say June begins and, with it, the commencement of Pride Month though I can be forgiven for thinking that the former has, in relatively short order, surpassed, in importance, the latter. June's now become little more than a footnote to the much more momentous occasion that is pride. I think it's time that we acknowledge as much. And if we don't, fear not. For the next thirty days we'll be reminded, every time we turn on our television, swipe across our phone, open a magazine, or double-click on our web browser, that Pride Month is here. Hopefully, a full thirty days will be enough time for us to become inured to the garishly offensive new Pride Flag, at whose inelegant lines, misconceived patterns, conflicting shapes, and discordant colors one can't look without becoming a bit queasy. Take a look at it, if you dare. I think we can all agree, at the very least, that no self-respecting gay man had a hand in designing this unsightly awkward flag, and whose lack of harmony, absence of grace, and clash of colors the blind man would cringe and the gay man revolt. I say this with all due affection to my gay friends, of whom I have many, and to whom, frankly, Pride month isn't a time of special and exuberant celebration. Now, were I in the LGBTQIA plus community, I'd urge my fellow flamboyant members to use this month as a time of reflection, not only on days past, but on those to come. As its political clout grows, the community will have a few pressing decisions to make, most of them concerning the T component in its ever-expanding name. I speak, of course, of the trans community. Leah Thomas, the University of Pennsylvania swimmer who, not unlike the butterfly for which everyone's least favorite stroke is named, metamorphosed with the magical aid of estrogen and self-talk from a male into a female, sat down for an interview on ABC. Unable to soften his sonorous baritone voice, Thomas criticized his fellow swimmers, not only those on his team, but those in the wider NCAA, from whom he's received no small pushback, who were understandably reluctant to accept into their pool and into their locker rooms a grown man demanding the status of an equal competitor. The idea pushed by the trans community is that gender is a social construct, and that sex is, for all intents and purposes, mutable. Biology need not be embraced and certainly not accepted. One endures the indignity at the time of his birth of being assigned a gender, a sex. A haughty declaration issued, no doubt, by a bigoted physician to which the screeching, oppressed infant under his care most certainly did not give his consent. Logically, this poses something of a threat to the LGB side of the alphabet long acronym. The gay man contends that his sex and sexuality are naturally determined. They're something with which he was born, out of which he can't be so easily converted. Just think of the ardor with which so-called conversion therapy is resisted. He's dependent on very distinct categories of sex, without which his preference makes far less sense. The trans woman on the other hand, like Leah Thomas, seems to reject these distinct categories on which the entire logic of homosexuality hinges. In defiance of biology's despotic mastery over his authentic self, he asserts that he ultimately can be sovereign over nature and, with a regal wave of his rainbow scepter, alter biology at his will. He argues that his biological sex, on whose clearness and solidity the gay man has always been insistent, is totally immaterial and unfixed. These two positions, the one endorsed by the LGB side and the other by the T, simply can't coexist. Nor, I think, can they be easily reconciled. Perhaps this month, This glorious Pride Month will be productively spent finding a logical solution to this dilemma, by which we'll be left feeling a little less dizzied as we are after looking at that strange new Pride flag. And finally, a bonus item! How lucky of you this week! BTS Visits the White House to Discuss Anti-Asian Violence Just as Asian Pacific Heritage Month was set to expire, and Pride Month to begin, the K-pop band BTS visited the White House to discuss with President Biden how we here in the States might go about lessening the incidents of Asian hate crimes. It's unclear why the counsel of a foreign boy band, whose home and chief market is South Korea, was welcomed and desired by this administration. None of its seven members, so far as I know, is an American citizen. That said, I'm quite sure that they're all South Korean, a nation above whose 38th parallel, a murderous thug by the name of Kim Jong-un keeps millions of people in a state of utter immiseration. Day after day, Year after year, generation after generation, they're subjected to the worst torments of human life. And these wretched people are, yes, I'm quite sure, Asian. Does Kim Jong-un's enslavement of these people, BTS's northern neighbors, not qualify as Asian hate? Will they not schedule their next humanitarian junket to Pyongyang? in order to browbeat the totalitarian government into enacting all necessary and enlightened change that they see fitting? What about China? After traversing the Korean peninsula, will they now cross the Yalu River and hold a meeting with Xi Jinping? Will they offer their advice to the Communist Party, apparatchiks beneath whose boots the entire Uyghur population is being smothered? Or does the destruction of an entire Asiatic race not quite count as Asian hate? No, perhaps only America is guilty of this crime. I could go on, but I think you see my point. With that, we move on to our weekly quote, the segment of this series to which I most look forward this one comes from Thomas Reed, a Scottish philosopher of the 18th century. He was both contemporary to and critic of his famous countryman, his more famous countryman, David Hume. Reed said, quote, There is no greater impediment to the advancement of knowledge than the ambiguity of words. End quote. This quote strikes a very strong chord with me, so strong, in fact, that I plan to focus and expand on it in a later essay. Think, very briefly, of the concerted effort in recent years to make language, especially political language, ambiguous. A few examples before we go. Sex and gender. Common sense gun laws. Illegal aliens. Undocumented residents, pro-choice, women's health, white supremacy, institutional racism, privilege, I could go on and on. Again, there is no greater impediment to the advancement of knowledge than the ambiguity of words. And what an impediment we have built before us the ambiguity of words, the deliberate um, shading of what their true meaning is, I think, is the great challenge of our day. And with that, my dear friends, we've come to the conclusion of another episode of Finneran's Wake. Now, I appreciate all of your viewership, all of your attention. I'm trying slowly to grow this channel, and every one of you is vitally important to me and to what I hope to be my success. So, if you can muster up the kindness to do so, subscribe to this channel, on which I urge you to leave a five star rating, and more than that, to share it with your friends. Let them know that you found a new podcast, a new voice. From whom to get the news. Fly fly the the, and with that, farewell fly fly from Finnerin's room. Rock Believer Rock, Rodan, Rock Believer Rock, Rodan, Rock Believer Rock, Rodan, Rock Believer shout Rodan, Charliever, shout Rodan, Charliever, shout Rodan.